From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking, and I'm your host, Frank Rossi. My guest on this episode of Frankly Speaking is Brad Klein, academic, journalist, former pro caddy, and golf course architecture aficionado. Brad received the 2015 Donald Ross Lifetime Achievement Award from the American Society of Golf Course Architects and published a definitive book on Donald Ross called Discovering Donald Ross. Brad has published thousands of articles in golf publications from the USGA Green Section Record to Golf Magazine and Link Magazine. Just a note before we get started, it's our 10th season of Frankly Speaking, and it's time to thank the folks at Dryject who have been with us from the very beginning. I've been an advocate of Dryject services because I've seen the results, how it improves performance, and maximizes productivity by aerating, top dressing, and amending in a single pass. Don't take my word for it. Check them out at dryject.com. Welcome to Frankly Speaking, Brad Klein. I have to say, of all the podcasts I've done in the last 10 years, this one is a special one because, in fact, you're partially responsible for me doing this when you called me to write for Golf Week Superintendent News. I think it was 1998 or 99 when you started that publication. So let's start there, Brad. Why did you decide to start a publication for golf course superintendents? Well, it was 1999. I was working for Golf Week, and I was the architecture editor. And frankly, I was on the verge of a tenure decision, and I really did not want to put myself up for tenure. And so I begged Golf Week to hire me full-time. I was writing for them part-time, a column. And they said, you know what? We're starting to think about a magazine anyway. We're going to hire you. So... It just sort of fell together. And someone said to me, you know, what's there to write about golf courses? And I said, there are 16,000 golf courses. That means there are 16,000 stories to write. So we just kind of cobbled it together. We had, in those days, an unlimited freelance budget. I knew then, and I know still today, nothing about turf, but I know how to write and edit and put together interesting stories. And I don't really know, Frank, how I've stumbled upon your name. I'm sure it was recommended or it was probably Peter McCormick through TurfNet who told me about you. And we were just looking to fill space. And uh, <laughs> I said the, the typical thing. I called you. We talked a little bit since we're both from New York. It was easy to connect. And uh, I think at that time you were still an assistant professor. I was. And what I do remember is that you were still writing like an assistant professor rather than a communicator. And so it took quite a bit of time to translate your writing into accessible, down-to-earth prose for superintendents. And I'm really proud that uh, you put up with me uh, and that I put up with you. That's and exactly uh, right. But the thing is, we never actually fought. It was always a matter of how do we try to explain this as simply as possible. That's right. So, I, you know, I think it's a matter of we're both academics. We're both uh, interested in effective communication, and it was a great opportunity for all of us. And here it is 24 years later. Yeah. And I'm forever grateful, Brad, because you are exactly right. I was, I was very pleased to uh, have you, and I admit it freely, you know, you really helped me learn how to write like that in a nice way, because my next editor, after you moved on, I would not say as many... <laughs> many nice things about it. And if, uh, and Kiger, uh, is, is ever listening to this, Kiger and Reitman are listening to this. They know who we're talking about, who maybe wasn't as nice, but at the same time, I will say to anybody listening, you know, writing is hard. Uh, you know, what do they say? I like 
having written but not writing. So having a good editor of your writing is really important. But I have to say, Brad, it always fascinated me. You had this love and passion for golf and certainly have become one of the foremost writers in golf course architecture. But you came from strategic studies and world order. I I actually believe wasn't some of your work in, in nuclear proliferation as an academic. What was it that interested you in that part of academics that you didn't then want to go up for tenure for? Well, like a lot of people, I love golf and I wanted to be an academic as well. And so I thought golf was a hobby. So, you know, all through grad school, I caddied on the PGA Tour. I would take my professor's papers and essays and books and edit them in hotel rooms while I was caddying for the likes of Lon Hinkle and Fred Marty and Bernhard Langer. So, you know, it was always that kind of I got this going, I got this going, and I sort of gravitated toward political international relations. Uh, In 1994, I wrote a book called Strategic Studies in World Order. I published papers. I was lecturing all over the world. I had grants to the Australian National University in the Peace Studies program, although I spent a lot of my time playing golf while I was in (laughs) Australia. So I always had that going for me, but it was a freelance thing. I I had also been befriended Herbert Warren Wynn, the great golf writer, wow. and Lauren Rubenstein, who himself is a is a lapsed academic. Lauren uh, left grad school on the verge of a, an a, he was an ABD in psychology. <laughs> uh, all but dissertation for those not in the academy, ABD, all but dissertation. Yeah, but I was a serious academic, and I, my wife is, and that was the culture, and I thought I would do that. But I, frankly, the salary was terrible. Uh, <laughs> I didn't really like blue books, and I couldn't stand kids who didn't want to be in class. So I was a very devoted professor to the good students, and I was simply indifferent toward the <laughs> mediocre students, and I knew that. The, sort of the decision point, I kind of always knew I wanted to transfer into golf writing. I didn't know how it was, was going to do it. And then I landed a column in 1988 at Golf Week. So I was writing a monthly column. And then what happened is I started freelancing. So I was writing for Lynx Magazine and Golf Digest. And I got pieces in the New York Times for a while. And so gradually, my time and income went from dominant academic with golf on the side, and it kind of just went the other way. And then in 1994, I was working for an internet company called iGolf, paying my mortgage. I got into that really early and very intensely, and I just thought, you know what? My wife's got the insurance. She was tenured, and I was going to go for it. She was very supportive. So the big decision was in 1987, I had a paper accepted at International Studies Association on nuclear weapons, but I also got my first press pass to the master's. And I'm sitting there with a choice, and my wife says, go. So I went. And um, to the point now where I just finished my 10th golf architecture book, but I never left the political science. A friend and I, last year during the end of COVID, we wrote a book about authoritarianism and threats to democracy in the United States. And I still write columns on politics and international relations. So I keep my hand in that, but I guess you'd say I'm an academically trained golf writer. (laughs) And I would say that it's an interesting time to be both, but I actually didn't know you kept up with your political writing because on my list of questions was, do you miss that? It seems like an incredibly fascinating time to be writing about politics, authoritarianism, international order at a time when, you know, it's at the forefront. And I'm assuming you have strong opinions on the situation in Ukraine and what that represents for the world. Have you written about that particular subject? Oh, sure. I, we have a monthly column in public notice. It's on Substack. 
And we've written on Ukraine, live golf, cryptocurrency. We've written on uh, the war in Ukraine. Uh, we're writing one on China and their threat to uh, East Asia. Hmm. So we've, we've been keeping up. I'll just tell you this, and this is a teaser, which might lead to a bombshell if we're not careful. <laughs> but uh, while I was doing all this golf writing, I also started doing consulting, and I worked for a number of architects and got involved in a number of projects. And one of the guys I ended up being involved with went on to become president of the United States. And so... In that capacity, I got to meet uh, Mr. Trump many times, spent a lot of time with him, flew over to Scotland, stayed at his house. We talked quite a bit, or I should say, he, he talked, talked quite you a bit. listened. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I wasn't listening any more than he was. I didn't listen any more to him than he listened to me. So it was one of those relationships. Well, two guys from Queens, right? Two guys from Queens, right. Uh, so in that capacity, I got to know him very well. And I never accepted a dime from him. I never actually worked for him, but I worked around him and with him and spent a lot of time with him and his family and all that. Got to know them very well. And it was very helpful when I ended up writing my book about democracy and authoritarianism. And I'll leave it at that. Let's just leave it there. I also had the opportunities twice uh, to receive a paycheck. I actually worked for him. And just since we're talking about bombshells, in both cases, I got paid 18 months later and 60% of my billed fee. So everything everybody says is pretty consistent with my experience. Brad, I want to talk about what it's like being an academic and being a caddy. Right. I mean, when Longer's out here, let's take Bernard, who's had such a long and illustrious career. I taught him everything he knows. Yeah. <laughs> when you're out there and you're, you know, you're caddying. Right. I mean, your your brain is filled with a lot of things. I guess I didn't think a lot of caddies were academics. Where do most of the caddies come from? I thought they were basically, you know, really good golfers who just wanted to stay around the game. You had to be an outlier when you were doing it. You know what? You'd be surprised. The, the caddy ranks, I came up in the 70s when uh, total purses were $200,000, $250,000 for a tournament, not just for, you know, nine-way tie for ninth. <laughs> so you had to do it. You had a, really had a, a real love for it. I'm going to forget his name right now, but Tom Watson's caddy, uh, after Bruce, Neil, I forget his name now. When Tom Watson was on the senior tour later on, I'm jumping around here, but give you an idea. When Tom Watson was on the senior tour, his caddy, Neil, who also caddied for him at Turnberry when he darn near in yeah. 2009, when he nearly won the British Open, yeah. that fella, Neil, was the leading Democratic political strategist for all elections in the state of Pennsylvania. <laughs> and in fact, he did a podcast on NPR uh, and talked about that. But uh, you had all sorts of types. You had lawyers. You had guys who dropped out. You had ex-boxers. You had a whole range of the whole social demographic detritus of society. <laughs> and also just people who wanted to caddy and, and hang out and travel. You know, I, I, when I did it, I was in my 20s. It was the greatest job in the world. You traveled four in a room. You sort of hustled. You caddied pro-ams. You did whatever it took to get by in a, in a Motel 6, because purses weren't much. But you were there in the middle of golf. I caddied for Langer in 81, 82. I was his first U.S. tour caddy. I was fluent in German because I'd been studying for my doctorate. So I caddied for him in German and in meters the first couple of times there. <laughs> I'll just tell you this one story. I had him at Firestone at the World Series uh, yeah. in 1981. And I was very proud. I had taken my yardage book and converted everything to meters. And he said, how'd you do it? I said, 0. .90. He says, no, it's 0. .91. <laughs> So I had to go back and rewrite my entire yardage book because it was 1% off. So, so you're interested in the game, but really you're writing and then, you know, your work with the rating system, which I want to get to. But let's talk about 
you know, there's one thing about writing about the game. There's another thing about writing about the architecture, right? And, and you know, when you're hanging yeah. out with Herbert Warren Wind, I mean, you're talking about the gold standard about writing about the game, really, the stories behind the game. Was there something about architecture per se that you thought you were really good at and that was your lane? Yeah, I could remember all the holes I'd ever seen. I started going out on golf course when I was 12 or 13 years old, and I fell in love instantly with the place, the feel, the atmosphere. So when I caddied at clubs on Long Island at Inwood, Rockaway Hunt, and the Five Towns, I knew that the 150 market was really 153. I could read the slopes. I could read the character. I loved being out there. I loved being the one who knew how to help this poor, pathetic guy. You know, I'm caddying for guys who are property managers of the Empire State Building, and they're asking me for help. I love that. And so I could steer myself and them around. I went home and drew holes all the time. I had. I was the master, by the way, of the 305-yard par four because I had a, a foot-long ruler with 305 millimeters on it. So I drew everything to scale. I would use 260, 270 millimeters. I did everything with millimeters because they were easy for yards. I had these big oak tag sheets, two by three foot. And every architect, by the way, has the same story. When they were 13, 14 years old, they started drawing golf courses. And uh, then I read, it was a two-piece article by Herbert Warren Wynn in the Golf Digest of October and November 1966. You'd never forget this stuff when you're a kid. Then it was called... Uh, the architect makes the golf course. 12 years old, that was it. I was absolutely hooked uh, on architecture. And I drew holes like crazy. I mapped them out. I could remember the holes I'd been on. My friends, they'd go out there caddy. They couldn't remember who, who they looped for. And I could remember every shot the guy hit. So you didn't pursue a career in architecture. Rather, you sort of pursued a career in critiquing architecture that... I know for many years you ran uh, the rating program uh, for Golf Week. You know, you have, as I know, and everybody who knows you, strong opinions on things. And like me, you're not afraid to share them. Rating golf courses seems like the epitome of sort of criticism and, and, you know, what a lot of people look at to determine the value of the golf course. How did you like doing that? Did that satiate your desire for really it would feel like a culmination, right? I mean, you're in a position where you're sort of organizing the Raiders and bringing the people around and getting the courses done. How did that figure in your running of the rating system for Golf Week all those years? Well, that was a big part of my job. And starting in 1995, they, Golf Week asked me when I was doing part-time work for them to put together a rating panel and rating criteria. And that was really exciting because I have to say, first of all, I have absolutely no training in anything I've been doing for the last 35 years. I've never taken a course in geography or geology. I've never, I don't know anything about turf grass. I have no formal training. But I love the aesthetic of it and the feel. And here's what I discovered is that you had a thousand golf writers back then writing about Nicholas and Weisskopf and, and Watson and Trevino. And you, all you had, the only guy who was writing anything about architecture was Herbert Warren Wynn and then a little later, Ron Witten. Mm-hmm. So from a standpoint of trying to establish myself, I realized instead of trying to be one of a thousand, I'll try to be one of two. So that's one thing I knew I had going for me. What I found is you had all this literature on music, 
criticism. You had cinema. You had philosophy. You had all these literary. You had nothing on golf course architecture as an art form. You had books by architects. I read all of those. You know, George Thomas and Jeff Cornish did one of the early ones, right? Yeah. Well, well, the the Cornish Witten book from 1981, the golf course, that was right. a real eye opener. Right. But by then, I had already read the George Thomas book, Golf Architecture in America, and Robert Hunter, The Links, and Alistair McKenzie's Golf Architecture with the 13 Principles. So I had read the classic stuff, but I hadn't read this account of the evolution of the craft. And that was a real eye-opener. That, that became kind of a Bible, the Cornish Witten book. Hmm. came out of nowhere when it came yeah. out in 1981. It was really wonderful. Yeah, and, book. I, and it's funny. I got to meet Jeff. Uh, Jeff Cornish came in to do some renovations at the Greenwich Country Club when I was there in the 80s. And, and listen, Brad, we've already reached our first time. We're a couple of New Yorkers talking fast. We've already made it to our first break. Uh, I'm Frank Rossi. I'm with my pal Brad Klein. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. I had the chance to meet Ken Rost several years ago when frost break technology was just getting into the golf turf market. And like many of his fellow Minnesota natives, Ken and Frost Inc. had well-designed, innovative, and reliable technology, in this case, spray application technology. It's been a pleasure for me to advocate for the use of their products as I have seen how they perform. See for yourself by visiting them at frostserve.com. That's frostserv.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Frank Rossi here with my friend Brad Klein. It's the laundry list of things that Brad does would be hard to list. But one of the things, Brad, that I've been really impressed with uh, over the years is how you've evolved to be, I don't want, I mean, sort of like a translator, so to speak, for superintendents, the management of the course and golfers and members of clubs, right? I mean, you came from this background of being really interested in particular things, but you really inserted yourself in the middle of a lot of these conversations that I'm sure you know can be very contentious at times. How did you find that lane in helping superintendents with their memberships? I know you've given a lot of talks in this area. And also you wrote this great article for the USGA, The 15 Steps of Course Renovation, of which most of them are basically, you know, helping members not create more problems. How did you determine you could communicate that lane between golfers and superintendents? That's a great question. I really appreciate your asking. Because when I was at Superintendent News and working at Golf Week, I was doing a couple of things. First of all, I was writing regularly. And I mean like three articles a week. So I had to translate very clearly. And one of the principles I learned was don't describe a golf hole because if you haven't played it, you, what you do is you describe the feel and the sensibility. And what I realized is a lot of golfers didn't have that knack. Uh, I was running a rating team, and most of the people on the rating team were evaluating a golf course by how they played it. And so I developed a set of criteria. And as an educator, I hammered home the importance of thinking about the golf course, thinking about its structure, thinking about the layout, the turf grass, and tried to get people to disassociate themselves from how they played it so that they could appreciate the art form and the landscape structure that they were looking at. Now, the same thing happened in my relationship with superintendents and architects. I started doing consulting, mainly to supplement my income, but also because I found I could communicate very clearly. And most superintendents, I have to tell you this, they're not good communicators. Mm -hmm. I have a column coming out about this in Golf Course Industry next month. People who are on the turf side of things, they don't get to talk to the golfer. 
their job is to sort of stay away. You know, they're up early. The mowers stay away. There's very little communication. The pro is greeting the players on the first tee. Superintendent is kind of self-conceived as a dirt farmer. There's not a great public image. And the kind of people who go into maintenance tend to be very shy, withdrawn, and they're working outside. They're not working in a closed space. So the culture is very different. And so basically what I found is that most superintendents were not good at communicating. They had a lot to say. They understood turf, but they didn't. They weren't really good at converting that into a language that golfers understood. And so I very quickly developed the approach with superintendents when I went and met with them. I could listen to them. I could translate what they were telling. You know, I, I use them all the time. I just spent a ton of time with uh, Troy Flanagan at the Olympic Club writing a report for that club, for example. And I listen carefully. And when you get them to talk about their stuff, they are amazing mm-hmm. in terms of the detail. But it's the kind of stuff that most golfers' eyes would glaze over and like, what do you, you know, they don't even have no, <laughs> no real reach. So I kept emphasizing with superintendents, converted into a language that relates to how golfers experience the course. Mm-hmm. It's one thing about root structure and disease prone, but it's also about ball roll mm-hmm. and how it presents itself and various lies and what the golf course looks like and how the surface feels. So I was able through this effort, I guess you say, both to insert myself as a, as, a, as a liaison, but also to help superintendents, encourage them to speak and to be more outgoing. And, you know, there were a couple of examples that really inspired me. Tom Bastis, uh, who's now with the PGA Tour as an agronomist of the West, kind of the West Coast, but he was a Cal club in uh, San Francisco. And I never saw anybody more bold and brazen about addressing and confronting <laughs> and members in a way that was respected. And so I'm really of the view that if you can stand up for yourself, not punch back, but assert yourself, you know, you don't say no to a golfer when they come up with some stupid harebrained scheme about, you know, landscaping (laughs) with uh, pure white sand and an island green. But what you say is interesting idea. You know, if we do that, it's going to cost this, that, and the other. And so I have a couple of rules about that, which is never say no to somebody. And the real skill, and I've lectured on this extensively in turf schools, the one skill they never teach you in turf school is how to pretend to listen. That's how to, a really wait, wait, skill. hold on. How to pretend to listen. Yeah. Not listen, but pretend like you're listening. Most people you're listening to don't know what they're talking about. They've read two articles. Your green chairman has just read two articles that morning in the green section record and thinks he's an expert on you know fungicide applications. So, you know, what they don't understand is most superintendents are scientists. They've got extensive degrees, four years. They go to training. They go to the GCSAA annual meetings. They've immersed themselves in this stuff. Okay, so listen, that really covers it from that end. But here's the other part of it. You've also got yourself in between the architect and the members sometimes. Like, yeah. And it's really the other end of the spectrum. I mean, I've worked with, you know, Gil and Jim for a number of years now. I've been around Tom Doak a couple of times, Paul Albanese. We've got some students out there, Brett Hochstein, a lot of really good architects I've been around. Sure. As opposed to superintendents, you know, who have to build credibility These architects come in like they walk on water. I mean, anything they say is gospel. Do you oftentimes feel like you have the opposite? You've got to go to the architect. Oh, I don't know if this club's ready for this. How do you handle that in between? I know you you got yourself into one of the more interesting ones out at Sabonic with Jack and Tom all those years ago and, you know, wrote that great book for Sabonic. Uh, How do you deal with talking to the members when you've got, let's just say, fairly large egos in in Tom and Jack? 
Well, first of all, I have to say, the person who really mediated that whole relationship was the owner, Michael Pascucci. And here it is, 19 years later. I'm still working for Michael Pascucci. I'm writing a book on his new project down in Florida. So he's the master of that in-between. But the question you ask is a good one. So a couple of things I realized. First of all, I realized architects get way too much credit. They're like the diva director. You know, that, that whole French film? The well, I'm just the, hoping the, Jim uh, Wagner's listening to this. <laughs> well, he's a little more down to earth. His job is to handle Gil. So that's a full-time job, too. You talk about another diva. Easy. That's a Cornell guy there. That's okay. <laughs> Gil's flying off first class in, uh, in private jets and uh, leaves you know, all the work and the budgeting and the detail, and they get along great yeah. because Gil knows how to talk to people and to set things up, and Jim is really good at the dirt and the, the budgets and the detail, and so they work together as a team. But Generally, what I found was that most architects get way too much credit. They're like the auteur, the director. And, you know, when you think about a film and a director, what about the, the lens, the gaffer, the electrician, the scene, the painters, all the cameramen, the writers, everybody, they get ignored. So, yeah. I was listening to Tom Hanks the other day talk about his new book. And he described the director in his book as the luggage handler who balances out the luggage underneath the plane to make sure that the weight is distributed properly, which I thought was a much lesser role. But, you know, on one hand, Brad, I know what you're saying, and I know we're making light of these situations, yeah. but you, sure. you know, got your award in 2015 for your wonderful publication, Discovering Donald Ross. Do you have more admiration for the dead architects uh, versus the living ones? No, actually, I don't. A couple of things. First of all, you're, let's to clarify, you're, you're referring to the Donald Ross Award for Lifetime Achievement by the American Society of Golf Course Architects, which I was thrilled out of my mind to win in 2015. And that was a great recognition because, to get to your point, 20 years earlier in Scotland, there was the annual meeting. I've spoken at the architects meeting many times. I gave a very frank talk uh, at that meeting, this was in Scotland at, at Turnberry, and with slides. And I was judgmental about people in the audience. And boy, I think I, I had to eat dinner by myself for the rest <laughs> of the week because I said things that were that I felt, but I should have tempered them a little bit. But the architects know that I appreciate their work. So here's the answer to your question. I love the work of the dead architects. You're talking about Rayner and McDonald mm -hmm. and Langford and Moreau and Ross. But the golf course architect today has a much tougher job because they're answering to 29 different authorities and regulatory bodies and environmental groups and wetlands concerns and floodplain issues that the old architects never had to deal with. So from a technical standpoint, I'm always impressed with how they do that. And the other skill that just absolutely blows me away is the architect's ability today to look at a piece of existing property and reroute it. Hmm. or figure out how to, how to move holes. I see this with Gil. Everywhere he goes, his, his ability to reroute and have alternative uses of terrain. Andy Staples at Meadowbrook in Detroit, for example. Yeah, I mean, Andrew Green just did a pretty nice job at Oak Hill that we saw this past weekend, you know, even finding, uh, you know, recovering the old yep. number five. Yep, and then uh, having the nerve to blow up everything that Fazio's, the George and Tom did prior to the seventh, the eighty PGA, and you know that new fifteenth hole, which of course Michael Block made a hole in yeah. one on and, and set the golf world on fire. Absolutely. So have the nerve and the ability to see that is really something. Actually, it was a more dramatic rerouting at Inverness where he found new holes. Mm. So that ability, I really respect. I try in my mind, and I can do it sometimes to think about it. But to do that and then to understand, you know, 
flow and then contours and slope. And you can look at it. Tom Delk routed Sabonet from his office in Michigan. He did it off a topo. <laughs> yeah. And of course, he's probably like you. I mean, these guys, I remember walking through the woods with Tom when he was prospecting a golf course up in Door County, Wisconsin in, in the early 90s. And we're yep. literally walking through the woods and he's talking to me about the hole. Oh, yeah, this yeah. is a par four. I see it. I'm like, I don't know what this guy sees. Uh, I can't see anything here. So that is a it's yep. much like what you described. You have it's like a photographic ability to envision something. Well, it's more than photographic. It's actually a couple of different things. First of all, it, to be able to take a route, a two dimensional topographic map with two foot contours and turn that into a routing plan. That is astonishing, because when you look at that, it's hard to tell what's up and what's down. But you can these guys know how to do that. So. That's converting two dimensions into three, and then walking through that like if you had the Google glasses on and you could walk through this whole world. So that's <laughs> quite an amazing skill that a few guys, have, few people have. Uh, that's one of them. The other one is to look at raw land. I can do that. I can look at raw land and see holes. I, I might not see 18 of them, but I can see six or seven, you know, but then to make them work together. All right. So what I can see is it's time for another break. <laughs> I'm Frank Rossi. I'm with Brad Klein. We are just rambling through a variety of topics. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. I remember when here at Frankly Speaking, we were in need of another title sponsor a few years ago as the industry continued to contract. I was at a regional golf course superintendent association meeting and I had a chat with my longtime colleague, Tom Weiner, the VP of sales for the plant food company. Now, I'd gone a few rounds with Tom over the years during our early days at Beth Page and the two U.S. Opens and PGA events. And I was pleased when Grant Platt said yes, and I'm still pleased to support the use of plant food products that are based on university research. Products and services is what set plant food company apart. Meet with a plant food representative to see for yourself. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Frank Rossi here with my pal Brad Klein, who was somewhat responsible for me. So if any of you have been miserable these last 10 years of my podcast, you have Brad to blame a little bit for it. And one of the things I have to blame you for, Brad, is stumbling on a guy named Jim Copenhaver. Jim used to write for Golf Week Super News, and back in the day, Jim was one of the few outspoken critics of the golf boom. Jim was writing for the magazine in the teeth of the golf boom when they were building a golf course a day and basically taking the National Golf Federation to task on a regular basis that was saying, I'm not sure what data those people are looking at, but I'm not sure building a golf course every day uh, is the right idea. I'm wondering what your thoughts are now that many of us are saying the pandemic saved golf. How has golf evolved in the time you've been working with me over these 20-something years? I mean, Copenhaver was saying don't build them. They built them, and now they're closing them down. I got to believe you were of like mind, and Jim wasn't just taking up space, that you actually had some ideas. He, he knew what he was talking about. What is your perspective on what the pandemic has meant for golf? 
Well, you're covering a lot there. So the first thing is, when I first heard Jim Copenhaver speak, it was like a bomb went off in the room, and this was the first guy who was actually being <laughs> sober and realistic, I would say. There were a lot of things going on in the heyday of the golf boom era, and Jim was concerned with the operational business of the facility. Essentially, the golf industry has two dimensions to it. One is the growth-oriented side, which is the architects, the contractors, the equipment suppliers, and then there's the sort of stable side, which is the finance people and the management of the day-to-day -day operation. And he was approaching things from essentially product management, if you will. Mm -hmm. So instead of just looking at these great big monuments that they were building, it was like, well, how are you going to keep that going? Who's paying for it? And that's when people realized that, you know, golf was more complicated as a business. I always say golf is a great game, but a lousy business. Mm -hmm. And Copenhaver showed for example, <laughs> you couldn't sustain a lot of these maintenance budgets once the, the real estate people sold out everything and bailed out, and then the homeowners now had to operate things. So he was very good at looking at realistic numbers. There was a lot of resistance. I think the, the golf industry was defensive about it, but he proved to be a harbinger of sort of a closing down period where you focused on managing your golf course. He was very suspicious, first of all, of these big grow the game initiatives. His view was, you've got to manage your facility and grow the game at your place. He was opposed, for example, to third-party tee times because you were going to give away your lowest tee time to a, an outside vendor. Mm -hmm. And so he was a fantastic voice of sober management. He's gained a lot of credibility over the years as the industry itself became less defensive. You know, we basically built a lot of golf courses, and then it was a question of, well, who's going to play them? And they weren't, there weren't enough people to play them. So they were selling. You know, there was an old adage in the industry, third party makes the money, because the first guy built it, went bankrupt. Second one bought it at an unreasonable price, and the third party bought it at discount and now can afford to operate it. So over the years, I would say from 2006 on, there was a steady attrition in the golf industry market. So they were net loss of about, let's say, 150 to 200 golf courses a year. And that was necessary. It was a course correction. Now, you could argue about some of the details. It was kind of the, the small mom-and-pop courses that were closing. But essentially, the inventory became smaller. So each of them then could take a little bit more of a share of, of a market, which had stopped growing. You know, there, there were no more golfers were coming in after 2006, 2007. So the golf industry responded. And there was a steady attrition not massive, but, you know, a net loss, maybe there would be 220 closings and 30 openings. Mm -hmm. Then COVID hit, and all of a sudden, all of these people who were home and bored found out that golf was the single healthiest outdoor recreation you could undertake and still be safe. And so golf courses and clubs since then have been booming, even with the initial closings in the period of 2020, when COVID hit, golf shut down in about 35 states for two months. Even in 2020, there was a record burst of activity for the second half of the year. It continued in 2021. It slowed down a touch in 2022, and it's probably slowed down a little tiny bit in 2023. But there's still, I looked at stats for a lot of clubs. Play the last three years at almost every club in the United States is about 15, maybe 20% yep. higher than it was in the three years prior to the pandemic. That's correct. It's it's rare you I visit a club anymore that isn't full or have a waiting list. Now, I have two more issues I want to chat with you about. Two things that golf's facing moving forward. 
Yeah. Sure. Let's start with municipal golf and the issues in California around what do we need this golf course for? We need housing more. What is right. your perspective? Because on one hand, you and I know those munis, it's where the majority of people are playing golf. It's where right. the majority of people have access, affordable access to golf. But you also can't deny the argument that, you know, maybe that space could be used uh, for other purposes. What is your sense of this issue between muni- municipal golf and, and repurposing it maybe for housing? I wrote about that bill. That bill was a scandalous piece of grandstanding by the Democratic Party in order to placate demands for, there is a demand, a need for, for affordable housing, no question. There are a lot of homeless people. Mm-hmm. But that bill would have created a slush fund for a development agency that would have been handing out projects, and it was very questionable in terms of the management of that outcome. So. What they were basically saying is that in certain areas where there was a need for housing, this fund would work with private developers to create the funding mechanism to support housing. And it was very questionable in terms of how that was going to be operated or managed or allowed to function in an open setting with public bidding. It was Mm -hmm. a very questionable bill. There are serious issues about housing. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the landmass of these golf courses and what they provide in terms of environmental relief, in terms of green space in these overheated, undertreated areas, the golf course provides a tremendous set of environmental assets. Besides being a, a mechanism of recruitment into the game, it's also a, a fantastic relief environmentally. So that bill was, I thought, a terrible piece of legislation. And I'm glad it got defeated in committee. That's right. But you could imagine, without the sort of politics that, you know, we have a tough time in many cases. It almost feels like that bill was easy. It may, you know, golf looked like an easy target. I, I think a lot of people view golf as a sort of an elitist, exclusionary yeah, sure. sort of uh, sport based on the, the demographic. So unless one read into it and one was just a normal voter who just said, oh, golf or housing, you'd say, well, we need housing. I don't play golf. Uh, unless you read into it on its face, you could see that uh, maybe we're not done with this issue. Well, probably not, but the politics are always a little bit different than the reality. If you look at who plays municipal golf, it's minorities, it's women, people who don't have a lot of access to other recreational amenities. Part of the reason that municipal facil- golf facilities struggle is because they're underpriced. And that's the real issue in terms of management of these facilities, is that it's providing a public service and it was being well utilized. But to target that area, the housing market is a complicated issue, Ugh. no doubt. Yeah. But to take up green space to solve it actually just compounds the, the urban heat density yeah. that's environmentally a nightmare. Well, at the other end of the spectrum, Brad, is water and golf in the deserts where I know many years ago you and I were outspoken in Golf Week Super News when all the overseeding was going on in the southeastern part of the United States. And now there's virtually none of that left. It's all, you know, pigments and paints. But when you go out to the Coachella Valley, Scottsdale and Vegas, three large desert areas that, to your point, were all built around real estate and those properties are almost fully developed. And there is a conundrum in two ways. One is a lot of those people don't play golf. They wanted a residence on a golf course because obviously it was a good investment. And now the question of water is coming up. And they're still overseeding, right? You know, green grass and sunshine, as many of my friends in the deserts have told me. How do you reconcile when you build entire communities 
around something that, again, on its face doesn't look sustainable and, as you and I know, is very exclusionary and it's not available to everybody uh, in these areas. What are your thoughts about the golf in the desert and the water issues out there right now? Yeah, it's a great question. Two things. First of all, many courses are converting to uh, zero-scape roughs and reducing their irrigated turf area. So instead of watering 80 acres, they're watering 55. That's one thing. So that's a big incentive. The other thing is in many communities, they're using not potable water. They're using recycled secondary water and paying more and being, in some cases, forced to use it. So the question I would have is, are those communities could be doing a public service by using secondary water? So in that sense, they're actually providing an environmental benefit to the community and a revenue stream to the towns because they're utilizing otherwise undrinkable water. So the real question is whether it's potable water from a source. Now, I know in the Bay Area, there's a big move essentially to tell clubs, we're going to turn you off from public sources. And all these courses now are building their own water treatment facilities. Mm -hmm. They're converting from cool season to warm season grasses and drought tolerant. Uh, And it's expensive to do that. But you're seeing this shift all through California. And uh, you haven't yet seen it in the the Coachella Valley or in Arizona as much, but certainly in in the Central Valley in Northern California. One of the things I'm noticing from those travels is that just to generate recycled water, you still need water. I mean, you can't recycle it if it doesn't get there to begin with. I think the bigger issue is how intimately linked the real estate market is to golf in these places. There's a golf course in the Coachella Valley that I visited that right next door across the street went out of business. And now you have these beautiful homes with an overgrown golf course. Yeah, This literally could collapse the entire system out there if water becomes limiting or we don't start hitting up the homeowners for the cost of the golf maintenance of the golf course, even if they don't play golf. Well, I think there is an attitude that, you know, damn it, I've, I've worked hard. I want to retire. I want to live on a lake, even if it's in the desert. And so that that's the mentality that's tough to sustain. And I think they believe that, well, we'll just pay more money for it. But first of all, that becomes increasingly unrealistic when you're facing a $4 million water bill. And also, it's not just cost, it's also availability. So I, I think that a considerable rethinking there is going to be necessary. I guess what I would say is that I have seen some very inventive adaptations, although they are very expensive, you know, just to build a water treatment plant for your own facility to reduce dependence on potable water by 30 or 40%. That's a $10 million investment. And it's operating costs of a half a million a year. So uh, that's a lot of money to tag on to your $1.6 million maintenance budget. That's right. Well, if you're lucky, it's $1.6 million. That's probably what some of those courses are paying for water. All right, listen, Brad, I'll get you out of here on this. One of the things that really got highlighted this past week at the PGA Championship was the the role of the PGA professional. The PGA of America does a really good job in promoting their membership. And, of course, nobody better than Michael Block recently in his humble approach to the game, the way he feels about the people he teaches. And just to bring it full circle, you know, the superintendent-pro relationship is really important, but not always very functional. What are some tips you would give superintendents? What are the most effective ways to work with their golf pros so that they can be on the same team? It's a great question. Real quick. Dysfunctional clubs, you can tell right away the GM, the pro, and the superintendent are carping at each other. The pro is dumping on the superintendent. At functional, really high, well-coordinated clubs, they're meeting regularly. They're on the same page. They don't undercut each other. The golf 
superintendent needs to play golf with the members. That's really helpful, mm. actually. And at least needs to hang out at the first tee and, and needs to be part of the attending the board meetings. And then the green committee meetings have to be held in the maintenance office rather than having the superintendent put on a jacket and tie and go to the board room for his meetings. So there are a lot of little ways and big ways. But I agree with you. It's, a, it's an issue. I think most really good professional golf, the PGA has done a great job of educating the pro into the turf area the joke i always like to tell we could end on this one perfect is that everybody walks into the pro shop and asks them about the condition of the golfers nobody goes down to the maintenance building and asks if they have a medium collar shirt with a pinstripe pattern so <laughs> uh, <laughs> brad it is always a joy to speak with you and i have to say for all the superintendents i know that you've uh, supported over the years that translation you do for what they do, because I think you're exactly right when you said earlier, it tends to attract people that might not be extroverted. They might be more introverted and more interested in the details and science of managing the course. I think the transparency that we have with data and, you know, firmness and green speed and those kinds of things are the kinds of things that foster good conversations. And I think guys like you really help the superintendents be more effective in their job. Thanks for all the years of doing that. 25 years later, we're still talking, Frank. How about that? <laughs> All right, Brad. Thanks a lot. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. I've been chatting with Brad Klein, and I really appreciate all of you joining us. Brad, take care. Thank you. Big thanks to my friend Brad Klein. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at DryJack, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass. The plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability. And Frost Inc. spray technology products who strive to make your spray day a great day. You can listen to us on Block Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger. Graphic design, Nicole Rossi. Theme music, Tucker Rossi. And executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.